Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Janelle Aldred, newsreader, communications expert and now author, who has worked as a journalist at many of the UK's largest broadcasting organisations for over a decade, including the BBC, ITV and ITN. Communicate for Change, Creating Justice in a World of Bias is her first book, and we're unpicking some of the fascinating themes within this book on how to make a positive difference, how to have better conversations, how to recognise their own biases and blind spots. This book really encouraged me to ask better questions, to not just go with the flow all the time, and to question my own assumptions. It's all about breaking away from singular narratives and monolithic thinking. I really like that. I love a conversation that looks at things from all different angles, so you can end up making your own opinions on on what's being said. I hope you enjoy this conversation about how it's okay to disagree in conversation, how it's important not to shy away from other people's truths in order to see how other people see the world and think, and about having everything out on the table so we can see what is really going on. So here is the episode with Janelle and I hope you enjoy it. So I'm joined in person with Janelle Aldred. I have wanted to speak to you about your book for so long. So I was very lucky to have an early read. So today's yes. the day. It feels like this has been like over, a, well, it has been over a year in the making for this conversation. So I am beyond excited because also you were amazing in helping me with my book in like some of the very tough, is this going to happen moment? Um, You were the person that I messaged and the book lives on. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. And um, I know exactly how it feels, especially with the debut book and all the nerves and all the stuff behind the scenes. But it's so incredible. You should be so proud of it. And we're going to dig into it. But for the listeners sake, I wanted to kind of give an overview of your career to date, because you're such an incredible journalist, communicator. You are an expert in this field for over a decade. And I just I wanted to ask you a really broad question, actually, to start off. What have you seen change in this landscape of communication over the last like decade? I mean, it's a huge question. But, you know, you talk a lot about what we see in the media is really sort of skewing our daily lives. Do you have any thoughts on just the last decade? The mobile phone. <laughs> the biggest thing that I think has revolutionised just the entire space, if you think that when we first had our mobile phones and we were playing Snake on them, um, the phone didn't do anything besides play games and leave voicemails. In the last decade, our phones have become a passport to the entire world. There is literally nothing that you cannot do on your phone that before you could only do restricted at a desk and before that a desk in an office that you didn't always have access to everything. You can do anything from booking flights to Googling information to directions to over there to reading the news to finding out what's going on in a far-flung place of the world to communicating with someone in a far-flung place. And I think that we sometimes underestimate what difference actually... People talk about the world at your fingertips, but it really is. And what a difference that makes to what we know, understand how we communicate, how we see the world, because we literally have a whole computer with us 24-7 and 24-7 connectivity. Completely. And I think we sort of take those things for granted now. But if you think about it, so much has happened so quickly. And on, on, in chapter one, you begin with this quote that you say, um, we have arguments now, not conversations. And to me, that Twitter is just like in my head whenever you talk about sort of th this inability to talk. And I suppose that links to what I just asked you about what's changed. I mean, our inability to communicate surely is because of all the technology we have now. Like it's helping and it's not helping. It's really weird, isn't it? Because people have never talked so much in the sense of 
if I'm running late now, I can just send a message. I'm running late, whereas before you made a firm plan. <laughs> there was no way of telling someone you were going to be late. You'd have to wait and see if they were there when you arrived, depending on how late you were. And that is what has changed. We've got so much ambiguity. So there's much more ways to have the conversation because it's right there. But at the same time, it's actually lowered, I think, our ability to be nuanced. Because when you text, when you write to someone, you receive it in the way that you are. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you speak to someone, you can hear all the different things that happens in someone's voice, in someone's face when they're communicating to you. So I think that's what's helped us to not be able to disagree well or not be able to argue sorry not be able to have a conversation because actually we're not having conversations anymore with the person so we're, we're always putting our own spin on every conversation which makes it hard for you to actually receive the nuance another person is trying to give you definitely I've noticed that I am much preferring voice notes at the moment yes. with um saying hello to my friends because I and, and the reaction I get back is completely different it's really weird it's like the minute we hear someone's voice we hear the nuance in the tone we hear just like the the you know the up and down of the inflections in our voice we feel closer to each other because communication is only seven percent the words that are used and the rest of it is all about tone body language when we think about how much gets stripped away with the majority way we communicate which is written you realise everything that's lost. And I love voice notes too, because I just think they're one, they're easier. Although one time I was actually live replying to someone's um, voice note, but it ended with a really sad story. So I was like, ha yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm actually live replying. <laughs> and that's why I've not got the appropriateness because I couldn't, I hadn't heard the whole thing. But when we think that when something's written, we lose that whole appropriateness and then we just respond as we see it. So I think I wish that we could talk more, but literally I think one thing about phones, it does everything apart from make calls. So I think that is mm. literally the hardest thing to do on it. So yeah. yeah, I think I've forgotten how. And if someone rings me, I have like a little mini panic attack. I'm like, why are you calling me? How rude. Without messaging me first. How very dare you? But being a newsreader over the course of your career as well, it's interesting hearing you say bad news, good news, tone of voice. Like what has that added to your career? having that amazing experience of delivering news to everyone? I think you learn about moving people through the gears. And I think that's something that we don't often think about. When we're going to have a tense conversation, most people just get straight into it. News reading is its a weird, even a weird start to the news. So you often start with the worst news because that's deemed to be the most important. But when people start news reading, like say, hello, my name, you can't start like, hello, my name. You start, hi, like I'm Janelle. And then you go into this really bad news. And then through the course of the bulletin, the news gets lighter and brighter and you end on a high. So it's like you're all the time moving yourself and the audience through all the gears. Because when you come off the back of a terrible news story and the next story is a story about something that's just completely a charity event. So now, you know, you, you, you learn how to inflect your voice and inflect your mannerisms to tell people that was sad. Respect. Mm -hmm. Now we're moving on. Okay, now here we are. And so I think there's something that actually you learn in that that most people don't ever learn about moving someone through the gears of a conversation. I don't think most people think about it in that way either. Um, but even when I teach people, that's what I say, you know, you kind of you've got to be able to change gear. That's so interesting because I feel like this book, Communicate for Change, takes us through the gears. Like you're obviously so great at that and you're taking us through quite complex thoughts and arguments and and themes but you're doing it in that way of like we're changing gears with you and we're getting the nuance it was so funny when I first read this book I felt like I had to readjust my brain because 
it's so nuanced. Like every line might be delivering an art, you know, something from all angles or actually have you thought about this? And I was like, oh my God, I'm not used to reading a book that is offering this many angles to me. Was it important to you to get that nuance across? Yeah, because I also didn't want to come across like I'm an expert telling you how to think. I think a lot of what we do now is we tell other people what to think and what they should then do as a result of this new thinking that I've told you is the right way. And there's something in that that I don't enjoy because actually I do want to think for myself and actually I want other people to think for themselves. So I'm not here to say to you, this is the way, the right way, and then you will be on the side of the angels. Actually, what I want to say is there's this way of looking at it. There's this way of looking at it in this messy, nuanced, contradictory way of thinking sometimes because it's kind of like, well, if it was like this, it could be like this. But But this is actually how we operate a lot of our lives and thinking about other things so let's say you're thinking about going on holiday you go right well I better take this dress but actually I should take this because if it rains then I might need that but actually if it doesn't rain then I could wear this with this so actually we do a lot of this complex problem solving a lot of the time very easily but I think when it comes to things around social justice because it is just so uh, fifth gear all the way actually I think it's very hard for us to problem solve and think about it in ways that we would solve other problems and I guess I wanted to add that Mm. that flexibility in how we approach people that's what I really enjoyed about your book is not being swayed too far one way I I was sort of reading it just being being in my own thoughts and reacting to what you were saying and it was almost an exercise in no have your own thoughts like you're encouraging us to have our own thoughts you're not telling us to go this way or go that way and and I, and I feel myself do it when I'm on Twitter. I feel myself, you know, we're social animals and we we, we move in, in herds and we yeah. want to be liked and we want to be, you know, respected. And to be honest, you know, we don't want to be cancelled. Like that is a real fear because cancellation, I know, I mean, I, I know we, you know, it doesn't really exist. It probably just heightens people's careers sometimes. But any sort of threat to your livelihood is scary. It's rejection. Cancelling is, that's what people feel. They feel rejected. Someone is saying not just are your ideas not good, you're not good. And that's how we feel about it. And I think, I mean, well, you know, in your in your debut book, when we kind of think about how much connected people feel to their work and how much they think their job is them, losing your job is losing you. But the reality mm-hmm. is it's not losing you, but it feels like it's using you. And I think what we don't sometimes think about in these conversations, it's not what's happening, it's what people think is happening. They feel cancelled. They feel rejected. And out of that comes a big defensive. So then they do feel like a victim. So then they fall into victim language and you're not the victim. You know, so it's kind of like this this cycle that no one ever wins. And I think that's what I find in my own self the most frustrating. No one can win at that game. It's just a sum total down to the bottom. But also it's it's quite nice to have a book like yours that is taking a step back. I, I wanted to ask you a bit about your family life and like how you grew up because there's some somewhere in the book where you say I was brought up to resist the group think yeah so obviously this is like in you to kind of resist this stuff my dad and um, when I was growing up um to, up to age 13 he was a pastor in a Pentecostal church and any kind of church religion is in a sense a kind of group think it is a form of we all agree that this is a principle it's the way to live and we're all going to follow these rules and Although my dad himself was a pastor, he was actually quite like, think for yourself. So rather than the kind of the thing of come in these doors and this is the way, 
my dad was like, never leave your brain at the door of a church, like bring it in with you. And so he himself was quite a radical of his time and quite a free thinker. And so we were just kind of raised in that same way, seeing that that way of being. And so for me, sometimes I think, you know, am I being contrary for contrary's sake? Because I do like to think for myself, but I tried not to do that. But what is definitely in me is just because you say that is true, then doesn't necessarily mean it is. And um, one of the feedback I got from um, on the book was, oh, you need to quote more people. And there's something in me that kind of is resistant to that, not because I don't want to quote more people, but actually it's not just right because then me and Emma said so. So just because now then me, Emma and someone else said so, well, then it's definitely right then. That is how we get to these places we get to of non-thinking. And I love the saying, if everyone um, agrees then no one's thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think we've come to this place where, especially in community, so whether we're women or whether we class ourselves as feminists or we talk about black people or whatever we're talking about, within that comes a form of groupthink that sometimes means then nothing changes outside of that group or for the group because nothing can come in and nothing can come out. And the osmosis of ideas is what helps us to grow. And when there's groupthink, there's no osmosis. There's mm -hmm. nothing to come in and out. And so I... I'm resistant to that because I think that's where creativity goes to die mm -hmm. when there is no individuality. And it's really eye-opening and exciting to, I think, follow quite a few different thinkers and to have it all feed into your own kind of view on the world and to make up your own sort of have your own outlook. And But I wanted to ask, like, what are the challenges in being like this? Because I like to think that I do push back on things that people just tell me to think about. I'm quite, I don't know, I, like, I don't like being told what to think at all. But I am frightened sometimes to put my voice out there because, I don't know, it's, yeah, it's a social animal thing. That's the fear. And I think, I do feel afraid of that. There was many moments when the book was about to come out where I was like, maybe I should just go and join the circus. <laughs> maybe, is it too late for me to run away? Is it too late to say no? I don't, because actually there is a vulnerability in saying, well, actually, do you know what? I actually don't think that's right because we all see people paying the price for that. That's what makes people afraid. It's not, and it's not an unreal threat actually to stand alone or to stand by yourself. I wouldn't say I'm terribly popular with everyone. I think some people tell you I'm the, as Hillary Clinton said, the nicest person I've ever met and the worst person I've ever met. And they're both probably right. But I think in that sense, I just have a real deep feeling that I don't want to be part of the problem by just not being myself. It's very easy to talk about authenticity, very difficult to do. But I think the more people that stand up and be themselves is the more everyone else knows it's okay. And it makes space for other people to be themselves too. And I think that's the place where actually self-esteem comes into it and self-esteem comes from um, a sense of you are enough. And again, another easy slogan to say, but actually when you believe you are enough, you can do some hard things mm -hmm. because actually the world pressing in or going is not the end of you. And so I think there has to, but I think that's a muscle that you have to grow. And I feel probably very blessed that that was a muscle that was exercised in me from like a really young age. So as you get older, it's a muscle that I've worked on a lot. And actually being a black woman in this world, I wouldn't say I'm exhausted by it. I don't really want to say that because I don't feel exhausted by it. I have so much energy for this world to be fairer. So I, I'm not exhausted by it, but I do know at times it has made me tired. Just the constant pushback from pushing back on things that I don't think are okay because we live in a world that says don't push back. 
Because if you push back, this will happen. You'll be ostracized. You won't have a job. You won't do all of these things. But I think I've come to see that actually, when you do push back, some people don't like it, but actually you go further and farther and you actually allow other people, the person coming behind you to do more. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King was not popular when he was alive. Nelson Mandela was not always thought of as this great peacekeeper. Gandhi, we think about them like that now in the hindsight of knowing they did the right thing. But at the time, they were taking big risks for their career, going to prison. We don't look at it like that now. But I think it's important that we do to understand that contextually, if you are yourself, it's not going to be easy, but it is worth it for the bigger win. There's a phrase in the book that you use that I had written down that I thought was really interesting. You said, we are not and we can't be the thought police. And we are policing each other all the time online at the moment. And I I did want to ask you, because I was just genuinely curious, does that mean we have to allow any other views? Because I I think what was difficult, and and actually an author said this, and I actually can't remember who said it to me on the podcast. I'm, I'm sorry, I will link below once it comes back to me. But someone had said that we actually need a like a Piers Morgan type to bounce back against in order for society to kind of, in order for people in society to know what they even think. Like you almost need something to argue against. How do you feel about that? Because, you know, I kind of want to mute him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think many people do. <laughs> um, I think uh, I'm a big believer in free speech. I always have been and I always will be. And I know that this is where it does get tricky for some people. One of my friends said to me, why don't you take racism personally? And I said, because it's not personal. Someone has got a whole ideology around a whole group of people they've never even met. That is, I refuse to let that be my burden to carry. Because me taking that personally is me taking on... It just To me, that doesn't make any sense. But I know a lot of people struggle with that way of seeing it. What I think about free speech is, it's the fact of, as long as you are not inciting violence because there are obviously lines that can be crossed. Piers Morgan comes very close to the line a lot of the time, and I think sometimes he steps over. But he has a view. And I I just don't think we can live in a world where we just reject that anyone can speak. You know, people deplatform people and all those things. But then there's no rigour of the thinking. There's no understanding and also not a chance for that person for the rigour of their thinking when they're countered. So like you say, you can't counter it unless it's in the light. So when people are like, I was so surprised that we left the EU, it's because you, you don't allow the space for conversation. So you don't know that there's more people who think that way than think like you. That's mm-hmm. why you're surprised. But what does that say about what you're surrounding yourself with in terms of conversation and speech? There's all kinds of nefarious things that get driven underground where they fester and grow because there's no light on it. And when it bounces back up into the light, it's a worse monster than when it went underground. And I think that by sometimes doing that, we are actually making a lot of issues worse. So I love it when people say, you know, I remember the good old days and you could say anything you want. Well, what do you want to say? <laughs> That's my first thing. What is it you want to say? Say it then. But I, I just think we have to be grown up about it. There are some words that should not be said. I hate the N-word. I don't like to see the N-word used, not in rap, not in nothing. I don't think anybody should be saying it. But there are some people who feel that is their freedom of expression. I cannot tell them that they cannot do that. If a rapper chooses to say it, he chooses to say it. That's his right. That's his freedom of expression. But when a white person uses it in a racist derogatory term, well, okay, but that's not okay. But we have to be grown up that there is a nuance in that. And I think we want it to be neat that shouldn't be said, this should be said, but we have to understand there's context. And I think we just need to just be more grown up about these things because I think actually the way we're talking is in a very childish way at the moment. 
God, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because what you're saying is you just want it out on the table. And actually, that's a healthy that's a healthy way to live for everyone to just stop echoing each other and say what they really think because then we can actually change things which is literally the title of your book (laughs) (laughs) communicate for change but I guess that leads me on to actually um, a really fascinating bit in your book that does sort of not go against but just opens up this this narrative in, in in a wider way and I haven't really read it in other books that I've read recently about how we group people together so much in in this world. And you make a really good example of the fact that we never say the white community because we give white people this complexity to everyone's different. And when we say the black community, it's so bizarre that people would think the black community are a group of very like-minded people. Could you unpick that? Because we, it's just, we need to talk about that more. Yeah, because, you know, working in newsrooms, I have, you know, whenever anything used to happen in the black community, quote unquote, that we need to get a community leader, which my dad was one of. <laughs> um, we need to get a community leader, you know, to come and speak about this. You know, when we see other criminals in the news, no one says, right, let's get a white person to represent white people and tell us what, what do white people think about what, about what this person did. Why? And it is because they're afforded a thing that you're not all the same. So if you're a white man, you can be anything from a robber to a policeman, to a businessman, to an investor, a doctor, be anything. But then there's the black community. And the black community are disadvantaged. They're poor. They need help. They need our help specifically. And I really reject that narrative for any community. You know, you hear people talking, well, can you speak for the Muslim community? No, they probably cannot. They might be able to speak for themselves and a group of their friends, um, but no one can speak for any whole group. But we make groups flat and more othered by saying, well, there's no complexity here. I can get this black man and he's going to speak for all of the black people that live in Birmingham and is going to tell you all what they think about this particular incident. And I would love to see the the end of that. And also I would love to see people allowing themselves to be pegged as such as well, because that's also the problem. We have to not chime in with it because it's kind of like this two-way street that's going on because there has to be a level of complicity to allow it to carry on. And so I think it's about saying when I speak, I know I many of my black friends or a certain kind of professional person, they're a lot like me. And so it's very important to me that even when I write about black people in the UK, that I don't co-opt a narrative that I don't know, I don't understand, and I haven't lived Mm -hmm. because I don't want to talk about things I have not experienced. I can say that I understand from a data perspective, stories point of view, these things do happen. We know they happen. We know for some parts of the community, it looks like this or like that. But it's really important to me that I don't pretend I'm something that I'm not and speak for people that I don't actually feel qualified to speak for. So we need to not be complicit and other people need to not oversimplify black people. And it's like my little mission (laughs) to help people understand that we are a complex group. Do not conflate being black with being poor. It's really not always the case. And really well-meaning, you know, lovely white people, you know, will say to me, no, because, you know, surely it must have been worse for you. Actually, no, I actually think your upbringing is probably a bit worse than mine. (laughs) And I've actually been quite okay. And I recognise that is not the story for every black person, but neither neither is a story of poverty and lack. And until we get comfortable with the nuance, we can't move forward because then everyone thinks, well, 
being white and having my white privilege, I must help every black person I meet. Trust me, some of them are doing better than you. Some of them are doing worse, but some of them are doing better. And so when you meet them and you give that narrative to them, for me, it's an immediate turnoff because you're assuming a whole load of things for me just because I'm black and you're white. So I would love to see that kind of stripped away of like we're a homogenous or monolithic community because we're really, really not. But we also as a community need to reject that. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Fa- it's fascinating. It reminds me actually of, do you remember we had that Zoom ages ago yes. where we were chatting on Twitter and we were having a chat and then we were like should we move this to like a Google Hangout because I feel like we just have a good old natter and that was a real reminder of we need to stop just talking in like bite-sized pieces and when when we talk about seeing the individual in front of us and not generalizing I, I completely agree and I and I'm really trying not to just use like loose general terms just at all at the moment but it's quite weirdly difficult when we're in a society that love to like talk about men versus women for example and 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 that is that is like there's a truth to that the fact that we talk about statistics with men doing better in this way and women kind of losing out but do you think we should really try and move away from like any generalization or can it be useful sometimes it can be useful because i think some stereotypes are stereotypes because they're true <laughs> and that is like a really uncomfortable truth um some stereotypes are true but some stereotypes are not true and so i think I'm not a big fan of like colour blindness. And I know some people are like, you know, I just don't see colour. That is ridiculous. You know, if you can see, you do see. So let's not pretend that we don't. It's about seeing and not putting a negative assumption next to it. That to me is where we want to get to. Mm-hmm. And so I think in terms of generalisation, it's not bad to say, oh, there are a group of black people, you know, or, 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 or noticing something. But it's about when you're actually then interacting with those people, it's about not putting your assumption on them of what you think they are because they're black because that's when it becomes unhelpful you know if you see a person coming up behind you with a balaclava on and black gloves and you know yes there's probably a general assumption that is true that you should probably walk quicker be afraid call the police we can see that as a general assumption it keeps us safe stereotyping in many ways it kind of does but equally I think the world has changed so much and people have become more and more complex and more and more open about our complexities so in that we need to recognize that and it's kind of what I say the culture has moved on quicker than our cultural intelligence so we have to recognize that some of the old stereotypes that we had actually don't work anymore in this world Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of the tropes that we have are old tropes like the strong black woman or you know those are old stereotypes now so they are not useful I completely hear what you're saying on that the other part of your book that I hadn't really seen anywhere else was the chapter on black privilege that hasn't really been discussed the black middle class are like an invisible group of people in this country and in many countries because we never talk about it and it's really really interesting to me um because growing up, I knew a lot of middle class, lower middle class black people. So in that sense, that was all I knew until I was about 13. So to me, it's always, it's all, I, I, I just find the lack narrative just like really difficult. And maybe that's something that's in me, the, my own kind of chip on my shirt. I just find that really difficult because I know there's a whole sector of people that we just never see on the telly. 
we don't really see talked about. So people say there's no role models. There's loads of them. They're just not on the news. They're just not in the magazines. They're, they're not the names that we lift up. When we think about, you know, famous black people that are lifted up, it's creatives, it's music, it's, you know, singing. It's And there's nothing wrong with all those things because they're wonderful parts of our culture that, you know, are richness. But we don't often see not talking about race, black academics, because when they're on the telly, they're normally talking about race. We don't often hear them just talking about their subject. I love comms and, you know, I didn't want to push myself into a space, but I see the world through, as a black woman. So I wrote the book from that space. But I remember saying to my manager, because I do have a day job, and I said to her, you know, what I don't want to do is like quit my job and never do pure comms because I love comms. I love telling stories and, and I can't imagine a day where that is not part of my work mix. But the push would be for me to just talk about race all the time. And I'm more than just being black and I'm more than just being a woman and I'm more than my job. But then also I'm accumulation of all those things, which is what makes me who I am. I'm a friend, I'm a sister, you know, all of those things. And so I want to be able to be any and all at any time. And I just think with the way the world works at the moment, it's kind of like, well, we're having a great moment about social justice around race. So all black people can ever talk about is being black. And there's just something in that that then does make it a tick box exercise because it's actually only about this one box on the form and in reality like any diversity scheme and I've said this for a long time when we put people in that space we need a woman and we get a woman we devalue all of our other skills and talents because we don't talk about them mm -hmm. we talk about how great it is to have a woman on the team and it's going to bring some much needed like a fresh outlook and we don't say she's actually really badass at her job and that's why she's in this room and probably more badass than everybody else here to get into this room. And so until we start speaking in what I would call a more grown up way about these things, it will always just be very stifling and minimising and making people's worlds very small because my world is just not about one part of me. Yes. We're so complex and we're more than our jobs and we're more than whatever label anyone puts on us and we're just all walking around with so many layers to us. And I, I've always been super interested in that. It must be so irritating to have your race just pinned on you for, you know, even in the journalism world, like some editor wants a column on on this issue and it's like, I can talk about other things too. Yeah. And it's like, if people want to do that, and there are some people who do, and I think, good, because we do need to talk about it. But equally, if people don't want to, if they have aspirations to do something else, and it it makes it such a thing, because I never forget when Prince died, and I remember they say, you know, he transcended his race. Why did he need to transcend his race? He didn't. <laughs> you know, but because of the way we do this and make it like this thing, it becomes a thing that somehow he needed to transcend. No, he didn't need to transcend his race. If he only ever sold music to black people, so what? Like, why Why is it this transcendence thing, such a thing that we look to to aspire to? And I think for me, probably contentiously, a lot of people talk about, you know, not centering whiteness. But when we talk about things like transcending race, we are absolutely centering whiteness because we're absolutely centering coming up and out of who we are to join the quote unquote normal mainstream. And I think we need to reject that thinking. And I reject that thinking. And so for me, not centering whiteness is not about saying anything that I want to say to white people that's in my mind. Actually, for me, it's about, I'm really proud of who I am. And that is just as it is in that box. That's it. Not in context to anything else, as I am, out the box, myself. 
And so I don't need to worry about centering neither whiteness nor blackness because I am black, because I am. And so there is no need for me to contextualize it in all these ways to transcend, not transcend. I get mainstream and non-mainstream because I think that's actually a better way to think about it. But we do know that most mainstream culture is centered around whiteness or, or, or white people's definition of how it's come to be this way. So yeah, I take that totally like into the context of it. But for me, this kind of thing is you're just not centering whiteness just because you say things in like a really bold way. To me, that's not what it is, that Mm -hmm. it's about not ever needing to transcend anything. That is so perfectly said. Everyone listening, I'm sure, is having that moment of like, oh, my God, what bias do I have? I know that you're not a fan of unconscious bias. It's pretty conscious. Like you have bias, sort it out. And also just this idea of just being you, your full self, your full unadulterated self walking around the world. Yeah, not needing to transcend no. a thing. Like, and so I, I I, kind of, you know, people say, well, you speak well for, for what? For who? You know, oh, you know, oh, I saw you on telly. You look so professional. It's my job and they're paying me. Like, what, what do you think is going on here? Like, mm-hmm. it's not some kind of favour that people are doing me. So I think the way that we really, really see the world is what comes out in all of those little comments. Mm-hmm. It's not what people say. People, like you say, we all say the same things. Oh, I don't see race. Oh, I don't, you know, everyone's got the little cookie cutter quotes that we use. Um, but actually, where I listen as a comms person is to the things that are said in between those little perfect cracks, because that's the cement that holds the bricks together. And that's where we need to see change. Yes. And it's interesting what you were saying, I guess, about pushing back on things that are just sort of the norm or or presented to you as an opportunity. Like, for example, if if something's becoming trendy or there is like a niche in the publishing world that they want this now, it is as well, isn't it, about looking at capitalist tropes and how you don't always need to feed into what the world wants you to be. No, and I think that's where the real joy is. Like, who do you want to be? Because I think life is all about, you know, unbecoming everything you think you are to become everything you can be. And I feel like I'm always unbecoming. One At one stage of my life, I thought I really wanted to read the news at 10. That is like nowhere on my radar now. Like It's like nowhere in my world, nowhere in my dreams, nowhere in nothing. But at one point, that was kind of like a northern star that I was working towards. And you have to allow yourself to go, actually, I don't really need that Northern Star anymore. So I can actually climb down from this little mountain. This is not the hill on which I will die. And I will decide that there is another hill that I want to go and climb. But we sometimes become so reticent because we've told everybody what we want to do. And now we've changed our minds. And I think this is where it comes to part of the not being able to be an individual who is allowed to change. I want to change. I'm not the same way as I was when I was five years old. Because I've grown up and I change every day we're evolving. But it's about how much do you allow yourself to evolve? But that only comes, I think, by examining yourself, examining your thinking, as I hope to help people do, interrogating where this thinking is coming from. Because why is it so important to you that you don't change your mind? Oh, I know. It's fascinating why people are just like really cementing down into it for life doubling down on something they don't even want and all the effort that takes to double down on something that you don't even want but yet we do it all the time and we do it in many ways and I think a lot of it is about the group think and the right way to be and the right things to want you know I went on a date the other day and um it's a bit there but anyway I went on a date the other day and I said to him oh so do you enjoy your job and he was like oh yeah it's okay it's okay well, what do you want what you know 
where would you like to be like in the future? And he said, he said something else. And I said, oh, okay. And then he, and I said something, he's like, what about your job? And I said, said he's like, you sound like you love it. I said, I do. He's like, actually, I really enjoy my job. I said, so why didn't you say that? I said, because it sounds really corny. To who? But this is what I think people are doing all. We're anticipating how we think something is coming across. And then we are course correcting ourselves and the way that we're saying it. And don't get me wrong, we all have to share this planet together. There is a bit of course correcting sometimes that needs to be done. But at the same time, when we really think about how many people are really just not even being true to themselves and who they want to be because they're a feminist because and feminists do this, or because you're a black person and black people do this, or you know, you're a white woman and white women do this. Who are we really and who are we really doing it for? Yes. Who are we serving by doing that and just moving around the planet, just changing ourselves and sh- uh, shape-shifting so much? Oh, so interesting. And I'm so glad we've had this conversation. Um, I wanted to leave the listeners on a practical note, perhaps. If there's someone listening who thinks, okay, uh, there's lots of things I want to change. There's conversations, awkward conversations I need to be having. There's a big decision I need to make a decision on. What would you recommend to someone who's a bit terrified maybe to actually live in this truth and rock the boat maybe? I think first of all, I always think about a bit Oprah, like what's your intention? Like what is why, what's your motivation in terms of the thing you want to say, do, be? And I think motivation is a massive thing to think about because sometimes we then we realize actually this motivation is someone else or something else and actually I don't really want this thing at all so I think that is the first question that can tell you whether or not you actually want to do or say this thing that you're thinking of and I think the second thing to do is I always just try to really interrogate where are these things coming from where is this desire coming from honest self-assessment is this something that I think I can achieve I can do and then also you know if when it comes to difficult conversations really I think thinking about what do I want out of this conversation I think some of us were like I just need to say this to that person why what do you want to happen do you want that person to change do you just want to have it off your chest do you want to for them to do something else do you want to change do you want to understand and I think most of us go into a lot of communication exchanges just wanting to say something and we don't actually have the self-control to consider should we be doing it? Is it a good idea? Is now the right time? Should I wait? Should I do it another time? So I think for me, self-interrogation and asking yourself the questions first is a really good reason. Mm. I think the biggest conversations tend to be around relational. I think a lot of people, and there's lots of conversations that actually I decide not to have because actually, if I think about it, I know how this conversation is going to go. Not because I'm so sage, but because we're all humans And actually, for me, it's not for me to put my opinion of someone else on them. That's not okay. So there's some conversations that I do not have with the express purpose of this is the way that I see the world. This is the way how I'm seeing them. And this is about me. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for this book because it is about self-interrogation. It is about sitting down with your own thoughts and literally like not being influenced as much and and I really love that about it so congratulations on it for anyone listening who loved this please go and follow Janelle on all platforms you're so brilliant to follow online as well because you make me think and I sometimes I agree sometimes I don't agree and I'm like Janelle I love you (laughs) and that's how it should be and um, you open up our minds so I'm really excited for everyone to go and buy a copy. Thank you. And and amen to more disagreeing with understanding. I think that's where we need to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't wait for us to get there, hopefully, one day soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.